Amen. First Timothy 6, verse 12 says this. Paul writes, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. If you jump over to 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, Paul writes this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul is telling Timothy and he's telling the reader to fight the good fight of faith. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is saying, I have fought the good fight of faith. When he wrote 1 and 2 Timothy, during both of those writings, he was in prison. But 2 Timothy is believed to be, believed to be his last epistle written while he was alive. The last epistle that he penned. And in the last chapter of that epistle, Paul is saying, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. His death was imminent and he knew it was coming soon. What a wonderful thing to be able to say at the end of your life that I haven't wavered from my faith. My faith has persevered. I have stayed the course. I have completed the mission which God placed, the calling which God placed on my life. I completed it. That should be all of our desires if we're in Christ Jesus, to be able to say that at the end of our life and when we stare our maker in the face, to be able to say, God, I fought the good fight. I finished my race. I kept my faith. I did not waver. But as Paul said, it's a fight. It is a fight. It is the good fight. It is the fight, the fight worth fighting. It is those things, but it's still a fight. It's a struggle. If you know Jesus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Following Christ is not easy, and we endure things that other people on this earth don't have to endure. It's just the way it is. This struggle, this fight that all believers are fighting takes place in two places. It takes place on the inside of us, Galatians 5, 16 and on talks about the fight between the flesh and the spirit. There's a fight going on inside of us. And in Ephesians 6, it tells us, and in many other passages of scripture, there's a fight going on in the world around us. It's a fight. So how can we ensure that we are able to say what Paul said at the end of our life? Once again, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith I have finished the race. Tonight, I just, I'm just warning you, we're going to cover a lot of ground. I'm going to say a lot of things. So just get ready, buckle your seatbelts, okay? We're going to go to Hebrews 10 for the remaining of the night. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. I want to speak to you for a few moments. Sermon entitled, Fight the Good Fight. And we're going to bring out three main things we need to understand, we need to do to ensure that we finish our fight And that we don't just fight, but we fight well. So let's go to Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. We're going to be in this all night long. 
Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, this is what it says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're going to dive right in. The first way you need to ensure that you win your fight, the first thing you need to understand, the first thing you need to realize is this. The fight you fight, the battle, it's already been won. For us to win our fight, we simply have to learn to walk in victory. The victory of Jesus Christ. That's main point number one. Jesus has already won the fight for us. Jesus has already won your fight. The fight going on inside of us and the fight going on around us is unlike any other fight, any other battle that takes place on this earth. Because when, a, when students or when whoever professional athletes go on a field, when people go onto a battlefield, you don't know who won, who's going to win the fight till the end of the fight. You have no idea who the victor is going to be until someone surrenders or until the clock runs out. But that is not the case with this fight that we're talking about tonight. Even though this fight is a fight, we have to fight it. It's real. It's going on around us. The victor has already been determined, and that victor is Jesus Christ. Jesus won the fight. We couldn't win. He defeated the sin that we could not defeat. He conquered the death that we could not conquer. He mopped up the enemy that was mopping us up. That's what Jesus did. And because Jesus won, we can win. We are positionally in Christ in our relationship to God. So if we are in Christ, we win, period. End of discussion. It's not up for debate. And it's not that Jesus did all those things so we didn't have to. Jesus did all those things because we couldn't. We couldn't. We couldn't win. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant make that very clear. Much of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 19 through 23 specifically, is really summing up a lot of the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, which talks a lot about the Old and the New Covenant. That's what it talks a lot about. So I'll just quickly want to remind you, refresh your memory, or if you have never heard about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, give you a very quick, very basic, general Definition, or, or just talk about for a moment what that is and what the significance of the Old and the New Covenant are. Short version. In the Old Testament, God made an agreement with the Israelites. He said, if you will keep my commands, I will bless you and I will protect you. So Jesus, or God started with the Ten Commandments and he gave them to the Israelites. And the Israelites couldn't keep them, so they had to begin to make animal sacrifices 
to carry over their sin. Not only that, but God had to keep adding laws to those 10 commandments until there ended up being 613 laws because the Israelites were unable to, to keep the commands of God. They couldn't do it just like none of us can do it. They weren't good enough and we weren't good enough either. But thanks be to God that he had a plan from the beginning. He knew that we were unable to be righteous and uphold his law. God had already planned a new covenant to be made and be made possible by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the new covenant, unlike the old covenant, the new covenant is available to anyone and everyone, not just the Israelites. Jesus came to earth. He fulfilled the law. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was the only one who could stand up to God's standards of holiness. He was the only one who could keep it. He was the only one who was unable to, he was the only one who was able to do what no man could do. Jesus Christ became the ultimate final sacrifice needed to wipe away the sins of man. The animal sacrifices in the old covenant, they didn't wipe away sin. They carried over sin and they had to be repeated over and over again. But through Jesus' sacrifice, man has been given the gift of their sins being wiped away forever. Jesus' sacrifice is a sacrifice that never has to be repeated. Hebrews 8, 6, and 7. But as it, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Hebrews 8, 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Through Jesus Christ, we can take of the new covenant. We no longer have to try to keep God's commands in our own power because we can't keep them perfectly. Jesus kept them perfectly. Jesus made a way for the Spirit of God to come and dwell in us to help us keep God's commands. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us and he writes the commands. He writes God's words on our hearts. Is anybody excited about this? I, I've listened. I, I've heard this stuff a lot. I still get fired up about it. We take it for granted. Ask those people in the Old Testament if they wish they could be a part of the new covenant. You can't. It's impossible. Anyway, back to Hebrews 10, verse 19. If you could put that up there for just a moment. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, say confidence. We can have confidence in Jesus, not ourselves, that he has done the work for us so work can be done inside of us. Verse 20, it says this, by the new and living way, the new way, the new covenant, the living way, the Holy Spirit now comes and lives on the inside of us and he takes residence on the inside of us. Verse 21 Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus Christ stands beside God the Father, the great high priest interceding on our behalf 24 7. Verse 22, let us draw near to God, full assurance of faith. 
placing our faith in the works of Christ, heart sprinkled clean, the blood of Jesus has cleansed us, our evil consciousness our evil conscience no longer has to be there. No more guilt, no more shame. We've been washed clean. Verse 23, so let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold on to these truths, placing our confidence in what Christ did for us and what he continues to do for us. He is faithful. He hasn't failed us yet and he never will. Four things you need to understand before we move on about the fight that Jesus won and what that means for us. I'll be quick about it. Number one, even though we win because Jesus won, it doesn't mean we won't have failures along the way. We will fail. We will mess up. We will sin. It's going to happen. Now, it doesn't have to happen. Let me be clear about that. We don't have to sin. God gives us the ability to overcome any temptation, but the truth of the matter is we will fail. We will give in. But when we do, God doesn't pull us and yank us out of the race. He doesn't toss in the towel for us in the boxing ring. He doesn't pull us out of the fight. But that's exactly what the enemy wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that when you sin and you mess up, that God's pulled you out of the fight, that you've been disqualified, and that's simply not the truth. It's simply not the case. It's bad belief. It's bad doctrine. It's bad theology. It's bad all the way around. Jesus' blood, when you were saved, it washed you clean, and Jesus' blood will continue to wash you clean. I'm going to say that again. Jesus' blood washed you clean and it will continue to wash you clean when you sin run to the father trust in the work of jesus that cleanses you from unrighteousness and gives you the ability to resist temptation because he won you can win but so often when people sin and mess up they've got this skewed belief and so instead of running to the Father, instead of trusting in the blood of Jesus and what he did, they'll run away. Which leads us to number two. Guilt and shame have no place in the life of a believer. Verse 22 tells us, along with the rest of Scripture, when you mess up, the Holy Spirit will convict you. It will. But what Satan wants to do, he wants to twist and he wants to mess with that and he wants to condemn you. Conviction is from God. Guilt, shame, condemnation, that's from Satan. Conviction leads you to repentance. It leads you to turn from your sin. Condemnation drives you to believe that you are disqualified. Conviction tells you keep striving, keep fighting, keep running. Condemnation tells you to just throw in the towel, just quit, just get off the track. Jesus Christ stood condemned on the cross, so we no longer had to be condemned. And what we do when we roll around in guilt and shame and say, woe is me, I've messed up big time, and we have our little pity party, when what we do, what we're really doing, what we're really saying is that what Jesus did wasn't enough. That's what you're doing. 
It's prideful to place more faith in the power of sin than in the power of Jesus. Why do we do that? Why do I do that? Jesus paid all of it. All. Every bit. Stop letting the devil condemn you. Stop believing the lies of the enemy. Believe in his word that Jesus literally paid it all. That in John 19, 30, Jesus on the cross, he said, it is finished. Meaning it has been paid in full. That was number three. Number four, hold on to Jesus' victory to see your own victory. Have assurance in him, not yourself. Place your faith in him, not yourself. Place your hope in Jesus, not yourself. When you, for, when you sin, forgiveness is found in Jesus. When you defeat temptation, you didn't do it. You did it through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is given through the sacrifice of Jesus. What, we, what happens when we lose, or what, excuse me, when we fail, when we mess up? Oftentimes what we're doing, we're putting too much stock in our abilities. Too much stock in ourselves, our hard work. If we want to win, we've got to stop relying on ourselves, and we've got to start relying on him. Because that's when we're at our strongest. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 wraps this point number one up really well. That Jesus won the fight for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Moving on, main point number two of the night, main point number two that you need to understand, you need to know to hold fast to the confession of your faith without wavering is this. It comes straight from this passage of scripture. Number two, we need to frequently spend time in the presence of God. We need to frequently spend time in God's presence. Verse 22 says, let us draw near. Let us draw near. We see this language, we see this phrase used and scattered throughout the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.16, Hebrews 7.25, Hebrews 10.1, here in verse 23, and in and Hebrews 11.6. Let us draw near to God, let us approach, go to, run to God. Because of Jesus, we can have a personal relationship with God. We get to experience God for ourselves. We get to run into God's very presence. And it's absolutely incredible. I love that my faith doesn't just have to be intellectual. It's also experiential. I love this book. I love learning about God. And as you read this book, you can do more than just 
learn, you can experience God. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. I love the fact that I don't just have to read about the character of God and who he is and what he does and what that means for me. I don't just have to read about it and know about it, but I get to experience that for myself. It's a beautiful thing. We take it for granted. Verse 19, if we could put verse 19 back up there. Hebrews 10, 19, and we're going to go to verse 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Say holy places. Verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Through the curtain. What's it talking about here? Some of you probably already know. The holy place through the curtain. Point number one, it was important to understand the old covenant. This point, it's important to understand the role and significance of the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So I'm going to talk about that for briefly for just a moment. Just a general overview of the the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle being portable, the temple being more a permanent structure. God instructed the Israelites to build a tabernacle and then later a temple. And the instructions that God gave were very specific. He said what materials to use, what to build, where to place things. Very, very specific. You can go read about it for yourself. But in a short version, we're just going to talk about this. In the tabernacle and the temple, there were three places. There was the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. The holy place and the most holy place were separated or they were covered by a veil or a curtain. In the, in the holy place, there would be daily rituals and duties that the priests would perform along with other things. But when it came to the most holy place, it was only entered once a year by the high priest, right? So what would happen is, once a year, the high priest would go in and make sacrifices before God on behalf of God's people. But to do that, he had to go through strenuous ritual and he had to follow everything to the T that was commanded by God. You can go read about it for yourself. And if he got out of that, if he did not do what God instructed, when he walked into the most holy place, he would die because no sin could stand in God's presence. And when the high priest would enter the most holy place once a year, God's presence would manifest itself. And no sin could stand before him. So the high priest, or excuse, yeah, the high priest, he would wear a bell. He would wear bells on his garments and he'd have a rope tied around his leg. So when he entered the most holy place, if those outside of it didn't hear the bells anymore, they knew there was a good chance that he messed up somehow they would pull the rope and yank him out of the most holy place because if they entered it, they would be killed as well. So verse 19 and 20 are reminding us that because of Jesus, we don't have to be afraid like the high priest was. I would have been afraid. I don't know about you. I would have been afraid. But because of Jesus, we get to run right into the presence of God. We get to experience the manifestation of his spirit and of his goodness. We get to taste, we get to feel, we get to experience God. You want to fight well? Don't take this for granted. 
frequently get into his presence. When Jesus was on the cross and he died, it said the curtain, the veil of the temple was torn in two. No more separation. No longer did you have to go through all these rituals or had to be a high priest. Anyone could run into the presence of God. Jesus opened the curtain for us. So let us draw near. Let us draw near. Let us embrace the privileges of being in Christ Jesus. If you were to read over in Hebrews 11, just a few verses down, we see the hall of fame of faith. Men like Abel, Enoch, Moses, David, Joshua, and so on. We read about their faith. These men and women couldn't run into God's presence like we can. They wish they could be us. Did they have moments they experienced God? Yes. Did they see God move mightily? Yes. But it wasn't something they had access to like we do. Let us not take it for granted because we can literally, because of Jesus, run into God's presence at any time. So let us draw near to God. I told you we're going to cover a lot of ground. I want to say 10 quick things, and I'm not going to spend time here. 10 quick things about the presence of God and how good it is and why we should embrace our privileges and why we shouldn't shun or neglect them, which I've been guilty of. 10 quick things. In God's presence, your fear will be replaced with peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. In God's presence, you will find rest for your soul. Number three, in his presence, your sadness will be replaced with joy. Number four, in his presence, he will turn your weakness into strength. Number five, in his presence, you will hear his voice more clearly. Number six, in his presence, he will fill you with boldness to share your faith. Number seven, in his presence, he will fill you with power. It's time we stop being afraid of the enemy. It's time we speak in authority and we understand that the Spirit of God lives in us and as we run into his presence, our faith will be built. We will not be afraid of demons. We will not be afraid of principalities. We will be afraid of no one or nothing because we understand because of Jesus won, we win. It's time we start taking authority. It's time we stop being little wimpy people. Number eight, when we fail, stop running from him, run to him. Number nine, there is nothing like his presence. It's where you belong. Draw near to him. Number 10, in his presence, he will build your faith. The more time you spend in his presence, the harder and the harder it will be for anyone nor anything to convince you that God is not real and that he doesn't love you. Nothing nor no one will be able to convince you of that when you spend time in his presence. Let's take a breath. Third and final thing. Let's go to verse 24 and 25. Third and final thing. 
Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. If we're going to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, we need to have the right people fighting with us in our corner. We need to have the right people in our corner. If you watch boxing, UFC, whatever, you'll see men or women standing in fighters' corners, cheering them on, instructing them, helping them bear the burden of the fight. Rocky wouldn't have won all those belts if it wasn't for Mickey. Paulie was garbage, but Mickey was legit. Nobody likes Paulie. If you like Paulie, I'm sorry. Not really. Fighting the good fight, you need the right people in your corner because fighting this fight is a community endeavor. It's meant to be done among community. So let's focus on these two verses. I'm going to try to be as fast as I can. Number one, who you surround yourself with matters. Who you surround yourself with matters. Let us consider. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Now, I understand in this context, this is specifically talking about being intentional with how and who you're hanging out with and how they're influencing you and how you're influencing them. I understand that. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Before we do that, the question I ask you, do you consider, are you intentional about the people that you let in your circle, that you let in your corner? What are these people that you let in your circle stirring up in you? What are they provoking you to do? What is their influence on you? How are they impacting your life? We are constantly either pulling hell up into our life or we're pulling hell down. Or excuse me, heaven down. Good grief. I'm going to say that again. We are constantly either pulling hell up into our life or pulling heaven down all the time. What are your friends, what is your circle doing in your life? What are they stirring up in you? Galatians 5 talks about the works of the flesh. Is that what they're stirring up? Or are they producing, helping you produce, excuse me, fruits of the Spirit? Which one is it? Perhaps you need to cut out some of those people in your circle. People don't really like to hear that. Might think that's harsh. What's more important? Keeping the people that are currently in your circle happy or winning your fight? Which one are you more concerned about? We need the right people in our corner. We need people who are like-minded with the same goals, the same mission. We need people that want to win their fight just as bad as we do. We need people who are cheering us on and we're cheering them on. We need people who are storming the gates of hell and fighting the fight going on around us. That's the people we need in our corner. In the original text, if you were to look, this Hebrews was written in Greek. Instead, the word stir up, we see in verse 24, the word used was paroxysm. I might be saying that wrong. I'm saying it the best I can. The word used in the original text was paroxysm. If you were to look up the definition of this, this is what it means. A sudden attack 
or violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. Synonyms of paroxysm, spasm, attack, fit, burst, convulsion. That's a really weird way to put it, that believers need to make other believers convulse love and good works. I find that to be kind of funny. But here's the thing. What, what is this trying to say? Why was that word used? To remind us or let us know the profound impact that believers have on one another when they're fighting together. We have a tremendous impact on each other, especially if we are believers. There's something powerful that takes place when we are following God together because it's the way God meant it to be. If we understand Jesus won our fight for us, if we will spend time in his presence, relying on his power, and have the right people with us fighting in our corner, how can we lose? Number two, our people in your corner, I won't spend long here, stirring up love and good works. You want to know if they're the right people? Examine. We've already talked about it a little bit, but this passage specifically Stir up one another to love and good works. Are the people in your circle encouraging you, helping you love God and love your neighbor more? Is that what they're doing? Are they causing you to fall more in love with Jesus? Are they causing you to love people like you never have before? Matthew 22, 36 through 40, talks about that's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. John 13, 35 says, by this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Love. Are they stirring up love? Are they stirring up good works? James 2 says, faith without works is dead faith. It means there's no faith at all. Is that what they're stirring up in your life? Moving on, number three. Two more things. I'm almost done. Woo! Both these things come from verse 25. So I'll read it again. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Number three, don't neglect the gathering. Don't neglect the gathering. And I understand this is a Sunday night. I get it. Chances are you don't neglect the gathering. Just hear me out for a little bit, okay? In the original text, once again, in the Greek, the word used here for gathering was synagogue, right? That's the word used. That was the local physical gathering of believers. It's what we're doing right now. It's what we do every Sunday. It's what we do every Wednesday. We are gathering together. And we know because of this verse, the writer of Hebrews is saying, <clears throat> excuse me, as is the habit of some. We know some people are neglecting the gathering. We don't know exactly why. If you read the book of Hebrews, chances are people were probably neglecting going to the synagogue because they were afraid of persecution. Persecution, whether that be verbal, whether that be physical, chances are that might have been why they didn't go. But I will say this, in today's, today's day and age, people who claim to be in Jesus, there's a lot of reasons they neglect the gathering. Ten years ago, if you were to look at statistics, I'm not a huge statistic guy, but this one stuck out to me. I heard it the other day listening to someone else's sermon. They said this. About ten years ago, 
in America, someone, for someone to be considered a regular church attender nationwide, they would attend three out of five Sunday services, three out of five. 10 years later now, someone to be considered regular is considered to go to church about two out of five gatherings. Two out of five Sunday gatherings or whatever day they gather. I don't know what your opinion on is or on that is, but it sounds a lot not like neglect to me. Sounds like neglect. Go to Acts 2, 42 through 47. I won't read it for time, but that's devotion. And I'm not here to tell you or give you a moral compass and say how many times you have to go to church in order to not neglect the church. I'm not here saying you shouldn't go on vacation or you shouldn't enjoy a Sabbath or you, shouldn't never, you should never miss church. That is not what I'm saying, so don't take that from what I'm saying. But this is what I will say. If you have a child who's involved in anything, in school, sports, whatever... If they only go to two out of five of their practices, what are their coaches or their directors of whatever they're doing, what are they going to say? They're going to say, you're neglecting the team. That's what they're going to say, and they're probably going to kick you off the team. And I'm not here saying you're going to get kicked off the team if you don't go to church enough. So don't take that from this either. And when I say the word sports, I know people's guard goes up. I understand. I understand. And you think, I'm about to start attacking sports. And if that's what you get out of what I'm about to say, you're not listening. This is what I will say. I've been a youth pastor for almost six years now. And I've watched and I observed. And my heart continues to get heavier and heavier as I watch the amount of schools, parents, and people neglecting the gathering who say they're in Christ Jesus. I watch schools and I watch events and more things take place on Wednesdays and Sundays than probably ever before. Tournaments, banquets, recitals, plays, yada, yada, yada. We see all this stuff more and more and more. I've seen it myself. I've observed it myself. And I'm not naive. I'm not crazy. It's reality. And it is a problem. And I talk with students, and I, I truly, honestly can say, and I said this on Wednesday night to my students, I feel for students who are pulled from the gathering. I feel for them. And I know some of them don't want to be pulled. I was just talking to a student a week and a half ago who was so bothered that they keep having games on a Wednesday night. Bothered by it. Burdened by it. But sports aren't the problem. You know what the problem is? People in Christ who say they're in Christ, they're neglecting the gathering. That's the problem. They don't see it as being as valuable, and they're perfectly fine with being devoted to something else. Hello? Pulling a Kent Miller, Pastor Miller here. Hello? It's not on students. It's more on teachers, coaches, parents, athletic directors, principals who say they're in Christ. I'm not talking about people who say they aren't in Christ. We shouldn't expect them to respect us. And that's not what I'm saying. But that's who it's on. Why am I saying these things? The gathering is important. 
That's why it's worth being devoted to. It's a part of your faith. It's not optional. It's necessary. In closing, number four, it says this at the end. Even more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus is coming back and he's coming back soon. And we don't need the gathering less. We need it more. We need it more. We don't need it less. We need it more. We need it more than we ever have needed it before. It's scriptural. It's biblical. It's plain as day right here in front of our face. Our fight's either going to end one in two ways. We're going to die or we're going to see Jesus split the eastern sky, one or the other. So which one is going to happen? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to you, but this is what I do know. There are many people who claim to be in Jesus and they neglect the gathering and they need it now more than ever. If you want to fight and you want to fight well, if you want to finish your race, keep your faith, not waver, not persevere, or not, excuse me, not leave the faith. If you want to persevere, three things I'll remind you. We've covered tonight. I know I've said a lot. Number one, because Jesus won the fight, all we have to do is walk in his victory. Jesus has already won the fight for us. Number two, frequently get into God's presence. Number three, get the right people in your corner. That means spend, the right, spend time with the right people and don't neglect this. Don't neglect the gathering. Don't neglect it. If we do these things, we'll be able to say what Paul said at the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. If you just go ahead and stand with me, and I'm going to read this one last time. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I don't know about you, but that's what I'm hungry for. I don't know about you, but that's what I desire. And I so strongly desire to see people of faith, not just fight. I mean, I don't just want to see them in the ring getting their face knocked in and being beat up and bloody and bruised, but I want to see them fighting well. And God gives us the ability to fight well. If you just bow your heads with me, let us pray. Lord Jesus, let us not take you for granted. Let us not take your sacrifice for granted. God, let us not take your presence for granted. Let us not neglect the gathering of believers in these last days. So many people think they've been disqualified from the fight. Or people that have just completely, it seems they've dropped out of the race. I pray, God, they would believe your word. They would believe the gospel 
and that they would finish their race. If you're here tonight and you're struggling, you're struggling in your race and you need your faith to be built up, I just want you to come forward, if you would, come to this altar and we will pray for you and we will ask that God's presence touch you in a mighty way, that your faith be built, that you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that you will believe his words are true and that you would find family. You'd find the people you need to fight with. So if that's you tonight and you are struggling in your fight, I just want to welcome you right now. I won't hold long, but I just want to welcome you. Come, let us pray for you. Let us help you. Let us bear that burden with you. If there's anyone. don't have to be ashamed. There's a couple more of you out there. I'm I'm not one to try to do the Spirit's job for him, but I will say if you're an adult, there's an adult here who has been in church for a long time and they didn't understand the basics and they've been going to church for 25 years and they're like, why? They finally realize that why they just keep feeling like their face gets knocked in. It's time to come to the altar right now. So go ahead and come and don't be ashamed of your struggle. Because if we were to be honest with one another, a lot of us have found our place, ourselves in places of struggle. So come, don't be ashamed. If I could have people come pray with these people, these altars are still open.
It's time to dive in. It's time to dive in. If you want to dive into the presence of God, come to the front and jump in. Jump in head first. Don't hesitate. Don't neglect. Embrace God's presence. He is here.
your presence. Here we are standing in your presence. She kind of glory come down. She kind of glory come down. Here we are standing in your presence. Here we are standing in your presence. She kind of glory come down. Release the force.
physical healing. If you're in need of a physical healing, I want you to come stand right here. Any kind of physical healing. I need some prayer warriors to pray with me over these people. I speak healing over these people in the name of Jesus. We take authority over every sickness, every disease, 
every muscle, every tendon, every bone, every problem. And we speak healing over these bodies in Jesus' name. Enough is enough. We speak liberty and we speak healing in the name of Jesus. We take authority over every disease, every sickness, every bondage, every single physical thing that is going wrong with them. And we speak healing over them in the name of Jesus. The name above every name. Receive it in Jesus' name.
for what he's done and give God a praise in advance for what he's going to do in Jesus name be deceived God is not mocked for whatever one sows he will also reap for the one who sows to his flesh he will reap from the flesh corruption but the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up palace family we have been sowing for a long time a long time. Don't grow weary. Harvest is coming. I speak it. I declare it. It's been declared before, but I'll speak it again. Harvest is coming to this town, this region, and the surrounding area and to America. Harvest is coming. We've been sowing, but reaping is coming. In Jesus' name. Felt led by the Spirit to say that. Let us exalt Jesus and thank Him for what He's done one more time and what He's continuing to do in and around and among us. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your love. Lord, we thank You that You showed up in a powerful way. I pray that souls leave this house stirred up to love and good works. 
I pray we be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believeth, to first the Jew and then the Greek, the Gentile. I pray we declare the gospel of Jesus in this town, and I pray harvest comes, and I pray you prepare us for the harvest which you have for us and for your kingdom. Let us be a part of what you're doing. Thank you for winning the fight for us. Let us not forsake, let us not neglect your presence and let us fight for each other. Let us bear each other's burdens. And Lord, I look forward to one day standing in your presence and seeing my brothers and sisters in Christ encircled around me and living with you forever. I look forward to that day. We just pray that number continue to be multiplied. We pray, Lord, people who have lost kids, lost family members, that they come to know you. Harvest is coming. We, pro we proclaim these things in the powerful name of Jesus. We give you praise. We thank you. We thank you for coming out tonight. You can be dismissed. If you don't want to be dismissed, don't be. But we love you. We thank you. God bless.